0: You are receiving this transmission. You are Reclaiming the Faith with Phil Baker on the Fourth Watch
1: Radio Network. Network. Welcome to episode 65 of Reclaiming the Faith, a podcast with a mission to reveal what the earliest Christians believed about the core issues facing us today. I'm your host, Phil Baker. Now, let's dig into history. Hey, y'all, thank you so much for taking time to listen to Reclaiming the Faith. Well, before I get into the show notes about my awesome episode with Dan Enright on Prophecy, I wanna give y'all a quick announcement. Uh, my new album, The Wanderer, is going to be out on Tuesday, January 7th, 2020. So please be on the lookout for that. And uh, speaking of that new album, I wanna give y'all a short snippet of a song that I did with uh, Hannah Red called letting go. So I'm going to scoot forward to verse two for y'all to pick up to be able to hear her verse and a little bit of the chorus. So here's letting go. so yeah that is a duet on my new album the wanderer it's called letting go with uh, featuring Hannah Red on vocals and that's going to be out january 7 2020 all right well in episode 65 i begin a two part interview with my friend and frequent contributor to reclaiming the faith Dan Enright we talk about the cyclical or circular nature of prophecy and in part 1 Dan compares prophecy to a sewing machine in one of the most amazing spiritual analogies I have ever heard. Well, if you feel led to be a financial contributor to Reclaiming the Faith, one of the ways you can do that is by becoming one of my patrons at patreon.com slash philsbaker. And every month I put out two videos. One is an acoustic version of one of my original songs and another is a 10 to 15, maybe 20 minute video on one of the early Christians or one of the early Christian writings. Uh, Right now, the next Uh, Early Christian video I'm putting out is uh, a two-part series on Polycarp, one of the earliest disciples of the Apostle John, who was a bishop over the Church of Smyrna. So be on the lookout for that, patreon.com slash phyllisbaker. And if you're blessed by this episode, I'd really encourage you to leave a positive rating and review on my iTunes channel, Reclaiming the Faith. If you want to check out the book I wrote in 2016 called New Wineskins in the Simple Words of Christ, please look on Amazon for that. And if it's a blessing to you, please leave a positive rating and review. You can find links to all of my music on CD Baby and, uh, or you can go to my website, philsbaker.com and it has everything there. The music, the book, blog, my Patreon link, everything you you need from like reclaiming the faith and 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 Phil Baker is there at philsbaker.com also my wife has just been knocking it out the park with a lot of amazing interviews about spiritual abuse and unhealthy churches on her podcast the faithful podcast so please go check that out at faithfulpodcast.podbean.com or the faithful podcast on iTunes well I am blessed to be a part of Justin Fall's Fourth Watch Radio Network, along with BDK of Omega Frequency, who I do a monthly Q&A show with called Ready With an Answer. And if you have a question about anything that's on this podcast or BDK's or Justin Fall's, please feel free to contact me at email philsbaker at gmail.com or bdk at omegafrequency.com. And uh, we will be happy to answer those questions on that monthly Q&A show, Ready With an Answer. And finally, the early Christian quotes that I use can generally be found on the CD-ROM version of the Anti-Nicene Fathers on scrollpublishing.com, and you can get your copy for a mere $5 there. All right, well, without any further ado, let's get episode 65 with Dan Enright rolling.
2: All right, Dan Enright, thank you so much for taking time to come on the show, man. I am just really excited about this interview and excited to talk about prophecy, man.
3: Hey, Phil, thanks for inviting me back to, uh, to do this. I really appreciate it, and I uh, always love to spend time with you doing this ki- kind
2: of thing. <laughs> yeah. And uh, happy day before Thanksgiving to you. Hey, thanks. Same to you, buddy. Thanks. All right, man. Well, uh, yeah, we're gonna be talking about prophecy, and the reason why I wanted to talk about this is because, like, prophecy to me is something so mysterious in some way. Like, in my view of prophecy has changed throughout the years for certain, and the more I would like try to hold my feet in one particular camp, you know, inevitably something would come up to where I would be challenged and I wouldn't be able to hold that that particular stance. And so I wanted to talk about prophecy and a particular part of prophecy, like the cyclical nature of prophecy, which is really neat. But before we get into it, um, I just want to ask you, like, w- what's a prophet? What is prophecy? And how has your view of prophecy evolved through the years?
3: Um, hey, just to comment on what you said, I, I really appreciate your honesty in Saying there were points that you were challenged with your view of prophecy to the point of at least like helping you step back and if not even changing your view because when it comes to a subject like this, um, holding something like this loosely I think is is really important. Um, we tend to you know build our theologies and we we try to Create a coherence, or we try to um, maintain a a coherence within our theologies. Um, and sometimes we can become too um, i guess not too married but too um, attached <clears throat> to our particular theology, where if if there's a challenge that comes in one area, we can sometimes get defensive. But allowing ourselves to hold theology loosely, um, and and not, I'm not talking about like the core of our faith.
0: Right.
3: Um, But I'm talking about things like we're discussing today, uh, prophecy, um, things that uh, were or are uh, yet future. Um, And so to be able to be objective and be open to to having our views challenged, I think, is is healthy. Yeah, absolutely. So as far as—
2: Like what is a prophet?
3: Yeah. What is prophecy? As far as defining what we're talking about, um, prophecy, I think, just simply boiled down, is a word from God, a word from the Lord. In the Old Testament, we, we have a, an entire section of, that takes up about 29% of um, the Old Testament that, relate, that relates to uh, the prophets. So I think in defining prophecy, it might be helpful to begin with not what it is, but what it isn't. And what prophecy isn't is prediction. The prophets, as they were receiving the word from God, weren't predicting anything. If we look at the source of the prophets' words being rooted in God himself, God doesn't predict anything because he knows everything. So as the prophets received the word of God and they they gave it to their audience, they weren't predicting things that were going to occur. They were telling them what the Lord said will be. Mm. And so I think it's helpful to, to understand that because that word prediction, you know, often gets attached to this term prophecy in a way that might not be helpful when it comes to defining it. So we, we talk about the term predictive prophecy Mm. and it's, you know, it, I don't know if it's it's really the best term to use, um, because quite simply the prophecy is basically a word from God when yeah. it comes right down to it, so that's one thing to kind of say up front, I think, and then also another word that gets attached to prophecy is the term fulfillment huh. and so what what is fulfillment, what is it for? prophecy to be fulfilled and i think that's really kind of what we're discussing today as and we can talk about like what the what the nature of prophecy is to to introduce this but in terms of myself personally being challenged i remember taking um, some classes at a, a bible college and we were going through the gospels and we were in matthew and I remember when we came to uh, Matthew 2.15 and Matthew explicitly says that, you know, Matthew's full of this um, these things um, or this fulfilled this. There's this fulfillment formula that Matthew uses throughout his gospel. And one of them was in Matthew 2.15 relating back to Hosea 11, 1,
0: Yeah,
3: where um, out of Egypt I called my son and in Matthew's uh, fulfillment language, he says that that event, when after Herod died and it was safe for Joseph and Mary to bring Jesus back, um, Matthew relates that to the Hosea eleven one passage, which says, "Out of Egypt I called my son." But the Hosea eleven one passage goes all the way back to Exodus. Mm-hmm. And and that event where in Exodus 4, the Lord calls Israel his son, mm. and that event of the Exodus is the calling out of my son from Egypt. And so, in a sense, at the point of where Hosea is writing, that was fulfilled. Right. Right? Yeah. So, but then in Matthew, Matthew's using this fulfillment formula to say the event where Joseph and Mary brought Jesus back from Egypt, fulfilled um, Hosea 11.1 1, out of Egypt, I called my son. Yeah. So I remember talking to the professor about this and I'm like, how, if, if this was already fulfilled in the Exodus event and Hosea writes about it, how is it that Jesus fulfills it according to Matthew when he, when his family came back Out of Egypt, and I'll never forget what he said. He goes, "You have to understand that prophecy in the Bible is circular," Mm. and and I and he kind of just left it there, and I I just started thinking about that because when we look at uh, another passage that challenged me was um, Matthew one twenty three, where it talks about how Matthew says that the the virgin birth is a fulfillment. Of Isaiah seven fourteen, yeah. Um, but when you go back to the passage in Isaiah, there's clearly a a fulfillment that occurred in in that day in which Isaiah wrote. Yeah. And so I I was kind of leaning towards like a a single fulfillment for all of prophecy, huh. like whether Isaiah knew it or not, he was writing about what would be fulfilled in the virgin birth. Right. And so there's, I was thinking in terms of, of linear, there is one prophecy and one fulfillment. And so what my professor challenged me with is that, that I can't think in terms of fulfillment in a linear fashion, right. but there's a sense to fulfillment that has a, almost a, a circular sense to it. And the, the best, when I, when I read these passages and, and started to really, really think about them, um, when it comes to the nature of prophecy and the way my professor described it as circular, the best way I can describe it is the analogy of a sewing machine. So when we watch what happens with a sewing machine, it seems like what's happening is very linear. There's thread being sewn into some material and it's passed under the, um, or through the machine. And it creates this line of thread that attaches material. But if you slow that process down, you really look at what's happening. There's a thread that's underneath called the lower thread. And then there's a thread above the material called the upper thread. So this lower thread is a straight line that gets basically sewn into the material. So it's a very linear thing that happens with the lower thread. What happens with the upper thread is a needle brings it down, punches through the material and is underneath in the area where the the lower thread is that's running linear. And with with a bobbin, this upper thread, while it's underneath in the area of the lower thread, forms a loop. And what this bobbin does is it takes it back, the loop takes it back to the previous, where where the previous thread was knotted and grabs that linear thread, the lower thread, and pulls it forward into a loop. And so this process of of a sewing machine is kind of like the nature of prophecy. So we have the course of history running in this lower area. And we could say, this is the natural realm, the uh, the world. And then from the upper region of of this machine, God punches down into history, and instead of just carrying the thread um, in a in a continuous linear fashion, that loop is created where he where it goes back on the the linear thread and and then pulls it forward. It makes a new stitch. So it's like there's a new thing that happens, and there's there's progress. And if you were to space those stitches out to where you, like in like under a not under a microscope, but yeah, maybe under a microscope, and you could see space between you could see how that upper thread has pulled that the the um the lower thread, that linear thread forward. It's going back and it's reaching reaching back and pulling it forward, punches through, goes back, reaches that thread, pulls it forward. And I think that's the way that we need to look at prophecy. So when we take that idea of the nature of prophecy being like that, and we look at Matthew 2.15, with Matthew saying that Hosea 11.1 is fulfilled when Jesus and his family came out of Egypt, when we look at Hosea eleven one in terms of that bottom thread being the um, course of history from the Exodus, um, what happens in Matthew two fifteen is God punches that needle down through into history and grabs that prophecy from Hosea that was literally fulfilled in the Exodus, but then moves it forward in a in a new way in in a almost a progression of this prophecy taking on a newness and, and a a fuller meaning. So that's how I kind of see the nature of prophecy and, and maybe using an analogy to, to help in in understanding that.
2: Dude, that is one of the coolest analogies I've ever heard (laughs) for, for prophecy. Like, Oh my goodness, that's incredible. Let's, um, Let's think about some other scriptural examples of prophecy being cyclical. So, like, give me another uh, another passage. I think we wanted to talk about maybe um, Acts two and Joel two.
3: Yeah, Peter's um, sermon, so to speak, at at Pentecost. Um, of course, we know that on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was was given, descended down, and um, caused some some pretty f- um, phenomenal things to occur with uh, people who were assembled in Jerusalem, and there was a lot of confusion. And um, some people were saying that the uh, the people who were affected by this were were drunk. Uh, but Peter steps in and and basically uses um, a passage out of Joel to say that what was occurring. Uh, was literally fulfilling what, what Joel uh, talked about uh, back in Joel chapter two.
2: Yeah, so if we start in uh, Acts chapter two, verse 16, Peter says, this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I'll pour forth my spirit on all mankind and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women are. I will in those days pour forth of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. I will grant wonders in the sky above and the signs on the earth below, blood and fire, vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, and the moon will be turned into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come, and it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved." So tell me like how do you see that being an example of like the circular or cyclical nature of prophecy?
3: Okay. Well, I think there are three options when it comes to dealing with this passage, the way that Peter used it in the context of what occurred at Pentecost. The first option would be that everything that Peter announced was fulfilled. All of it was fulfilled. A second option would be that none of it was fulfilled because when you look at the context in Joel, it was addressed to uh, the nation of Israel. So when we're looking at uh, prophetic material in its context, um, we could say, well, that was all, that all pertained and concerned the, the nation of Israel and it had nothing to do with the church. So there's that option that that nothing was fulfilled. And what, what Peter is saying is, this is like what Joel described, but what is hard to get around in that view is that Peter says in verse 16, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Not this is like what was uttered. So when Peter uses that language, that is fulfillment terminology so a third option in looking at this passage that Peter uses from Joel is that there is fulfillment that came with the institution of the church through through the Holy Spirit uh, but, but it was partial and then there is still yet some of it to be fulfilled so of of those three options, um, what what is the most reasonable? What what does what makes the most sense in in how Peter used that passage out of Joel?
2: Mm. And so, like, um, how does the the subject of the day of the Lord help answer that question?
3: Well, going back to Joel, the context of um, of this passage in the book of Joel, is the, the day of the Lord. And so when we're looking at day of the Lord, um, I guess it, it would help to even define that. Mm, that's good. First and foremost. Let's do that. And and that's one thing that helped me change and adapt my view of prophecy too, because in thinking in, in a linear fashion and and just confining myself to certain definitions particularly when it comes to the day of the lord i always saw the day of the lord as that final day mm-hmm. that when when christ returns and um and i i viewed that as the day of the lord right but in the, one sense it is in one yeah. sense it very in much is sense it's not right because yeah. when you go back to the old testament and you look at how the day of the Lord is used throughout the prophets, um, the day of the Lord can be different things, not just that one culminating event. Um, And I think a really good definition for day of the Lord is a time which God announces through his prophets and sovereignly interferes in the course of history in an obvious way and brings judgment upon the affairs of mankind. Yeah. So it happened in different ways throughout Israel's history. The day of the Lord was used in, in different ways. And, and we see that throughout the, um, the Old Testament and the way the prophets uh, used that. So when we look at the Acts passage and the way Peter used Joel to say that this, this passage is being fulfilled, yes, we have that in the fact that the spirit was poured out. But what we don't see is what's, what characterizes the last part of that prophecy um, showing wonders in heaven above signs on the earth below blood, fire, vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood uh, before the day of the Lord comes. So in that sense, it seems like Peter is, is using that to anticipate the culminating event, the day of the Lord, when 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 Christ returns, uh, but that's almost in a not yet sense. Yeah. To where part of that prophecy is fulfilled in the pouring out of the Spirit, but then there's there's yet to be more of that prophecy to come to pass to be fulfilled.
2: Yeah, and it seems like uh, maybe. Peter's reference for that is what he heard from Jesus in the Olivet Discourse. In Matthew 24, when Jesus says immediately, and this is in verse 29, he says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory, and he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one of this guy to the other. And so, like, Jesus is quoting Joel too as well. And so, maybe it, it, is it that Peter believes they're in, the, they're in the final days, and the greater day, though, is coming when he's quoting Acts 2. He's like, We're in it, so you better be ready because he's coming back imminently.
3: It seems that way. Yeah. it seems that they were expecting that at any moment
0: yeah
3: in other and the the thrust yeah. of of peter's sermon really is that hey you guys better get it together right. because what what you haven't seen that second part of the joel passage is about to occur yeah and at that point it's judgment yeah. and you can even see this when we get to acts 3 In Peter's words, uh, starting in 317, And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that as Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. And then Peter's word to them, Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, And this is a real sense of this eschatological messianic age and that he may send the Christ appointed appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Mm -hmm. So I just, it's almost like they're expecting this. Yeah. Really, really soon. Yeah. And so that, uh, that seems to... To be um, something that that Peter included with that Joel prophecy in anticipation. Hey, this is right around the corner. Because the way that the writers of the New Testament use Hebrew Bible, the, the Old Testament, um, sometimes they'll just quote just a small section of, of of scripture to make their point. Peter could have stopped at the the pouring out of the Spirit using the Joel to text. But he didn't. He continued. Even though those things weren't visible, those things weren't occurring, those cataclysmic events. But I think it's in the sense that the expectation was it was coming r- next, right around the corner. Yeah. Um, and of course, there's there's a curveball too that just 49 days earlier um, at the crucifixion, uh, we're we're told in the gospels that uh, darkness covered the earth, right. and as a result of that, it could have caused the the blood red moon for Passover. Mm. So there, they may, there may be a sense that Peter is referring to that. Mm. Um, but I tend to lean more towards that that consummation of that that day of the Lord
2: event that that he
3: was that he may have been expecting.
2: Yeah. So uh, we see some of the immediacy. Uh, from Peter about the day of the Lord, as if it's it's like it's imminent. Uh, in Acts four, when um, the writer quotes uh, Peter and John uh, being released, they reported to um, their companions everything everything that the chief priests and elders had said to them in terms of the threats that they had received. And when all the people heard this, this is in Acts four twenty four. When all they heard when they heard this, they lifted their voice to God in one accord and said, oh Lord." It is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that's in them, who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, and then they quote Psalm 2, why did the Gentiles rage and the people devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly in this city they were both gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both. Uh, Herod and Pontius Pilate along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to to occur. And now Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your your bond servants may speak your word with all confidence. Uh, So it's neat, like they they quote Psalm 2, uh, which Psalm 2 is speaking of something that's either past or present. It's the king of the of the earth are are taking their stand, or they took their stand. Mm-hmm. So it maybe this happened in David's time to him, and yet it's something prophetic that's coming. Uh, the people in Acts four are saying, uh, "Sorry, they're saying it took it, it happened with Jesus at his crucifixion, with the uh, the leaders of Israel gathering together with Pontius Pilate and the Romans to crucify, coming against." the Lord's anointed is Christ. And yet we see that happening later in Revelation where the armies of the Antichrist gather together to make war against God Mm -hmm. and against Jesus when he comes back. Like uh, I've heard a lot of people say that like the battle of Armageddon is like this great army army gathered against another army. It's just like a world war. Mm-hmm. But that's not what's going on. Right. They're gathering to make war against the returning Jesus. Correct. And so, like, Psalm 2 has this, like, maybe it's, you know, 950 years before Jesus, and then it's at his crucifixion, and yet it's also coming.
3: Yes. Right. In in its fullest scope right yet to be. And no no question, the, <clears throat> the apostles literally viewed this as this psalm being fulfilled.
0: Yeah, right.
3: Because their commentary, which starts in verse 27 of chapter 4, They write for truly in this city, there were gathered together against you. And the language of the Psalm is the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and his anointed. And they go on to comment against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. So there's no question they're pulling from Psalm two and going, this was fulfilled in what, what occurred here. But if you go back to Psalm two, and again, they only quoted a portion of it. Right. Um, when you go down to Psalm two, uh, you can even start in, in verse four. Um, but going down into verse seven, I will tell the decree, "The Lord said to me, "You are my son, today I've begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations, your heritage and the ends of the earth, your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel." That didn't happen during the time of the apostles. But when you get to um, Revelation, you mentioned Revelation, and you go to ni- chapter 19, 15, and 16, that language from Psalm 2 is there because it talks about, in verse 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. Yeah. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. That is Psalm 2 language. Right. Occurring in Revelation. Yeah. So that's one of those instances where that cyclical nature of prophecy um, takes effect. Yeah, And it's it's like God um, is, it wasn't exhausted in the days of the apostles. Right. Psalm 2 wasn't exhausted, but there's more yet to occur. And we see that playing out in the book of Revelation at Christ's second coming.
2: Yeah. And, and so like, even though the disciples were right in one sense, they weren't able to see the whole picture yet. Right. And I think that's how we can kind of get tripped up and thinking today, like certain prophecies, they've come true. Mm-hmm. But yet there's something greater that maybe we can't see yet.
3: Yes. And all to your point from the beginning, from the intro, you know, hold, holding that loosely. Yeah. Because we're, we're dealing with a, an infinite God mm-hmm. with who, you know, we're, we're on this timeline, so to speak this linear timeline of history but God's prophetic timeline is completely different that 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 thing that gets punched through into the natural order into the historical flow is is something that we still don't understand yeah we we want to we try to yeah. which is all the more reason to Uh, try to resist being dogmatic, especially about prophecy.
0: Yeah. strangers in imminent danger from lusts of this world Don't be enamored by shadows The substance the Father holds is kept for His church Like love T